Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 31, and please stand for the reading of God's word. Beloved, listen to God's word. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch the Lord, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord through the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the, of the, hand of the Egyptians And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. One can learn a lot about a nation uh, by the wars it has fought. Uh, So here in the United States, we would certainly think of something like the Civil War. Uh, That's a war that happened over 150 years ago. 
And yet it continues to be a war that defines us, haunts us, shapes us, inspires us. For England, it might be perhaps the Battle of Dunkirk. A lot of parallels here with Exodus 14, in which the British and French troops were actually trapped with their backs to the English Channel and they were surrounded by the German divisions. And it was only with the help of civilian crews, riverboats, fishing boats, that over 330,000 soldiers were rescued that day. As long as there is a United States to talk about, we will talk about the Civil War. As long as there is a Britain or a United Kingdom to talk about, we will talk about the Battle of Dunkirk. And as long as there is a Bible and people who follow the God of the Bible, people will talk about the crossing of the Red Sea. This was the most famous event in the history of Israel, and you cannot understand Israel's history apart from it. In fact, I think that you cannot even understand Christian history apart from the Red Sea. Before the death of Christ on the cross, this moment is looked upon in scriptures as the demonstration of the power of God displayed in redemption for those who fear and put faith in him. Whether the, the law or the prophets or the writings, over and over again, the Bible looks to this event. And Deuteronomy 11 calls on Israel to remember the mighty hand of God when he delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Uh, Isaiah 51.10 says, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? The Psalms, time and time again, refer to this pivotal event and how God divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. That's Psalm 78, 13. The crossing of the Red Sea was the defining moment for Israel. Not because this battle displayed how strong or ingenious the Israelites were. but because it displayed God's power in redemption. If you look at verse 31 of our passage this morning, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So as we return to Exodus 14 this morning, God's glory and grace, his providence and power are front and center. Now, when we last left the Israelites, they were caught between the desert and the sea. And seeing Pharaoh's army barreling towards them, they cry out in fear. And they start complaining. This is where many of us find our lives hemmed in on every side, fearful, ready to complain. But God says in verse 13, of chapter 14, he says, fear not, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be 
silent. God says, quit your belly aching and see the salvation of the Lord. And what did they see? They see the power of God on parade, don't they? First, they witnessed the power of God displayed in his sovereignty. They, God displays his power in his sovereignty. Now, I know sovereignty and power, they, they're like synonymous words, but stick with me here. In verse 15, God says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now, this isn't meant so much as a rebuke to Moses, but the people through Moses. And God issues a rebuke. He tells the people, enough. Now is not the time for crying and complaining. Now is the time to get moving. Go forward. Redemption is now. Just as an aside, let me say that this is perhaps a good word for many of us here this morning. Because God is basically saying, now is not the time for pleading and prayer. Now is the time for action. Go forward. You see, some of us think that if we keep weeping and wailing, and that if we keep complaining like Job or lamenting like the Psalms, that somehow God is very pleased. Now, certainly God is happy when we bring our fears before him. But there also comes a time when the Lord says, I've heard you, and I'm answering your prayer, and now is the time to go. Move. Act. Charles Spurgeon preached on this verse, and he said this, Far be it from me ever to say a word in disparagement of the holy, happy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But beloved, there are times when prayer is not enough. When prayer itself is out of season. When we have prayed over a matter to a certain degree, it then becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty is to carry our desires into action and having asked God's guidance... And having received divine power from on high, to go at once to our duty without any longer deliberation or delay. In other words, sometimes to sit and ponder and pray just a little while longer, it's not a mark of great faith, but perhaps of unwarranted fear. But of course, what did God mean by go forward? Forward where? Towards the Egyptians to search and death? Or to throw themselves into the sea to search and drowning? And the Lord answers the question in the very next verse. And here we see the sovereign power of God. First, we see the sovereign power of God over hearts. God says, when you go through the sea that I, will, that I part, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. Later in verse 23 and 24, that's exactly what happens. Moreover, it says, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. And what does he do? He sends them into a panic. All of this is God's doing. No sensible chariot commander would ever say, 
okay, there's a sea with walls, and I'm going to go down into it. They would never do that. Who in the right mind would do that? Certainly, they remember the ten plagues. This would be irrational for them to follow in after them. But sin is irrational, isn't it? But God had determined to gain glory over Pharaoh and all his army. And God is the ultimate determiner of all things. And he stiffens the resolve of these Egyptians to chase the Hebrews into the sea. Even the evil in all human hearts does not limit the complete sovereignty of God over all things. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And God is sovereign not only over hearts, but over history. Notice that verse 17 and 18, when God speaks to Moses, what tense is he using? He gives the game plan to him, doesn't he? He speaks in the future. It's all in the future tense. I will do this. I'm going to do this. I will harden their hearts. They will pursue you. They will go into the sea, and I will get glory. God shows his sovereign power by telling his people ahead of time exactly what he's going to do to the Egyptians. It's kind of like that baseball player that comes to bat. He comes up to home plate. He looks at the pitcher, and then he points to center field. He's basically saying what? He's like, I'm hitting it out of here. Home run. I'm telling you beforehand exactly what I'm going to do when you hit me, when you throw that pitch. He is showing the sheer power of his sovereignty. Nothing stops God. Nothing thwarts or stops his purposes. His sovereignty is limitless, whether that's hearts or history. Second, God displays his power in his protection. Not only does God display his power in his sovereignty, but in his protection. God's God's people are trapped. Even with this parting of the Red Sea, which must seemingly part very, very, very wide to allow millions of people to cross, it would take some time. The Egyptian armies are upon them, and so now what happens is that the pillar of cloud and fire that has been leading them circle around the back of the camp and plant themselves between the Egyptians and the Israelites. God himself becomes the bulwark of his people. Now, the language is interesting here in that it says that the angel of the Lord and the pillar, they seem to be the same thing, manifestations of God, what theologians call a theophany, an an appearance and visible presence of God. Something similar happened to Moses back in chapter 3, where it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses, and then it's a burning bush, and it's God himself speaking to Moses. Now, often when you come across in your Bibles the angel of the Lord, it is usually divine. It refers to God himself. This angel of the Lord is worshipped, called holy, And so many Christians conclude that it is God himself. And many Christians also conclude, and I tend to agree, that the person both in the bush and in the cloud was the pre-incarnate son of God. In other words, because no one has ever seen the Father, and because the Holy Spirit never 
manifest itself in any physical way, never takes on any form, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the angel of the Lord. Whether this is right interpretation or not, God was certainly present with his people to protect him. God interposes himself between his people and the danger that they are facing. He says, I will stand in the gap. I will be their protector. God displays his power and his sovereignty and in his protection. Third, God displays his power in his creation. You see that in verse 21? Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. This is probably a good spot for me to tell you a little bit about this sea that is mentioned here. Earlier in chapter 13, verse 8, the name of the sea is identified as the Red Sea. And traditionally, both Jews and Christians have maintained that the Israelites crossed an arm of the Red Sea, the large body of water that separates Africa and the Middle East. If you brought your Bibles, you might have some your own Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you won't have any of those maps in there. But if you have your own Bibles, you might be able to flip to the back. You might be able to see the sea. Um, <clears throat> there's this place on the western side, usually called the Gulf of Suez. It's part of the Red Sea, and it's through that the Israelites crossed. Now, more recently, this identification has been challenged. Uh, the Hebrew word for the Red Sea is Yam Suf, which means translated Sea of Reeds, or could be translated that way. And reeds grow in marshy, fresh waters. So some argue that Yam Suf should instead be translated not Red Sea, but Sea of Reeds. The significance of that is that it moves the Israelite crossing more northward into these marshy swamps and lakes that are above the Red Sea. So Israel essentially doesn't cross this large body of water with city-sized walls on either side, but rather through this marsh or swamp. Now, the reason why such an interpretation is problematic is that no body of water in that northern region is ever called the Yam Suf or the Red Sea. More importantly, whenever Yam Suf is used in the Bible itself, it always refers to the Red Sea. So you see this in 1 Kings 9.26, Jeremiah 49.21. There are references to Yam Suf, and when you look at those verses because of the cities that it refers to in that area, it must refer only to the Red Sea. Now, you might be wondering, what is all this, what is this all about? What is this rigmarole? Red Sea, Sea of Reeds, what's the big deal? Because it seems so unbelievable that God would send a wind that is so powerful 
and so exacting that it would divide a sea and allow people to, dry, to go through on dry land. It just seems so unbelievable. So they, people are seeking for more plausible, more or maybe less spectacular kind of event. It reminds me of the story that I've heard a number of different ways, which you've probably heard before too. I don't think this story is true because I've heard it in so many different settings and told a number of different ways, but it's, if it's not a true story, it's one of the stories that you're like, I really hope it is true. But the old story goes like this, that a Sunday school teacher is you know, teaching the Sunday school and um, <clears throat> getting to this Red Sea section about the Israelites crossing on dry land, and this little girl just pipes up and she says, praise the Lord. What an amazing God that he could send the Israelites through the Red Sea on dry ground. And the teacher says, actually, you don't understand. It wasn't really the Red Sea. It was just some other little body of water that had a low tide. And this east wind blew through it, a very warm east wind. And the whole Israel, the Israelite nation passed through in about six inches of water. To which the little girl responds, Praise the Lord! What an amazing God! He drowned the whole Egyptian army in six inches of water. <laughs> you see, it will not do to somehow domesticate this miracle and say that it was just a little salt marsh that they passed through, a little river in the back. No, this is the Red Sea. And God uses naturalistic means for a supernatural event. The very point of the story is that there is no way to explain what happens here unless it is God, the creator of heaven and earth, the providential sustainer and the ruler, as the one who intervenes in an extraordinary way. So we've seen God display his power in all three ways so far, in his sovereignty, his protection, in his nature, in his creation that he's created. Fourth and finally, God displays his power in judgment. God displays his power in judgment. The Israelites, it says in verse 22, went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. They go forward into the sea in faith. Hebrews 11 tells us this. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. And at some point, the pillar of cloud must have moved out of the way for the Egyptians are permitted to pursue and go into the sea after them. But God turns the Egyptians' strength against themselves. They go down into the sea, but soon it says they panic. Uh, the wheels are starting to fall off, literally. It says the chariot wheels are clogged so that they drove heavily. Now, in those days, chariots were the latest military technology. This was the stealth bombers of the day. This were, these were the armored tanks of their day. But God turns their military sophistication against them. And all he does is just clog the wheels through mud and muck and mire. You see, Psalm 77 celebrates the path that the Lord takes these Israelites on. And in Psalm 77, it says, it describes the situation in these terms. 
The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The earth trembled and quaked. So while Israel walked through on dry land, the Egyptians were in the midst of a rainstorm and thunder and earthquake. And the more they struggled, the more they got stuck. And by the time they say, let's get out of here. Lord is on their side. Let's get out of here. It's what? It's too late. And the Egyptians know exactly who has derailed them. They cry out, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. God had promised that one day they would know who was Lord, and that promise comes true because as they go down to their destruction, they go down with God's name on their lips. The waters close in around them, and they're swallowed up by the water. In verse 27, it says that the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. You might have a footnote. There in the ESV, it says, Hebrew shook off. The picture here is that God is just dropping them into the sea. The Lord delivering Israel from their enemies is as easy as shaking off the crumbs off a tablecloth. Here then is final retribution, measure for measure. Here were men bent on destroying God's people, and just as they once tried to drown the the children of Israel in the Nile, these men face God's judgment, and they are drowned in the Red Sea, punished for their sins. And God is glorified as he displays his divine justice. Not one Israelite is lost. Not one Egyptian is spared. How did the Israelites escape from Egypt? It was not the wind and the tide. It was not simply poor strategy on the part of Pharaoh or an unexpected failure of military technology. It was not a sudden storm and and, and water and mud to clog up these things. It was the power of God. He was the one who brought Israel out of Egypt. And look at verse 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. From the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What a stunning reversal. Earlier in chapter 14, Israel fled before Pharaoh. By the end of chapter 14, Egypt flees from Israel. Before, all the Israelites could see was their predicament. All they could see were this army of Egyptians. By the end, all they continue to see are Egyptians, but dead ones. Earlier, all Israel had was a frantic fear, feared the power of Pharaoh. By the end, they have a healthy fear, fearing the Lord. Earlier, Israel complained to Moses, and now they believe in Moses. They trust him, God's servant. What happened to these Israelites? What caused such a change? What, when they shut their mouths, 
what did they see? They saw the power of God in redemption for those who have faith in him. That's what they saw. This is what this is all about. For the glory of God and the grace of his people. All of this was, was meant for that. And all of it produces in his people fear and faith. Now, what does all this mean for us? Because we don't have a pillar of cloud, nor do we have a Red Sea. But listen, this exodus, as great and as pivotal of a moment as it is for the people of God, was a mere pointer to the greatest escape, the greater exodus that is found in Christ. You know, after Moses, the exodus is echoed and remembered in the Old Testament. Um, When Joshua leads them into the promised land, and they're about to cross to go in, what happens? They step into the river, and the waters part. Years later, in Isaiah 43, Israel is in exile, and they're about to be judged by God's enemies. What does the prophet say? He says, Isaiah 43, 1, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Basically, Isaiah is saying, future salvation is going to look like the Exodus. Then in Jeremiah 16, 14, it says, therefore, behold, the days are coming. There's going to be a future salvation, Jeremiah is saying, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. In other words, there will come a day when you won't look back to the redemption to Egypt, but look forward to a new salvation. I think there are anticipations in the Old Testament for a second exodus. And turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 31. Luke chapter 9, verse 31. Jesus is at the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. And it says, they appeared in glory and spoke of his, meaning Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And you might have a little footnote there in your Bibles, where it says, Greek word, exodus. His departure, his exodus. I don't think that's an accident. Jesus is the greater Moses. The greater exodus is found in Jesus. In Jesus, we have been saved through our bondage to sin through the death and resurrection of Christ. Christian, perhaps you don't fear and trust the Lord. Um, Perhaps in the past you've seen the great power of the Lord, but you've forgotten because everything else in the world and all the power that is in the world has blinded your eyes to the power that God has displayed in your life. B.B. Warfield once wrote about the danger of forgetting. He says, God stately stepping in his redemptive processes may become to you a mere series of of facts, of history. It is all in danger of becoming common to you. God forgive you. You are in danger of becoming weary of God. That's what B.B. Warfield said. 
this Princeton theologian? Church, cast your mind again to Calvary and remember once more the power of God. Where did you witness the power of God? Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For what? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you remember that you were dead in your sins and trespasses apart from Christ? Do you remember that you were dead? You were not half alive. You were dead. No heartbeat. No, no, no desire. No breath for spiritual things of God. No one does good. No one seeks after God. No one does what is righteous. The thoughts of the heart are sick. Desperately sick. And the annihilation of the Egyptian army. That is what we all deserved. You deserve to be swallowed up. In judgment, not because of some petty vendetta or whatever it is, but as a just enactment of a just God. And yet here you are this morning, singing songs, praying prayers. And so if you belong to Christ, you have experienced the miraculous power of God. Every bit as amazing and as great as the parting of the Red Sea. The waters closing completely in judgment is a picture of what happened to Jesus. This is what Jesus willingly endured so that we don't have to. Jesus was drowned in the sea of God's wrath so that we could pass safely through. Jesus bore the flood of God's judgment so we could emerge on the farther shore and be secure in God's love and grace forever. Praise the Lord. You have a new heart. You have new eyes, new spiritual taste buds, and all this by the power of God. So, beloved, fear him and trust him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you see the power of God. Do you see that you are trapped with nowhere to run? Do you see that you need to leave and go forward. Are you ready to leave Egypt? Are you ready for an exodus? Will you listen to the Lord and go forward into the water? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. What an amazing blessing that you have that we have this recorded for us in history that we might be reminded of your power and your might in salvation. We ask, O oh Lord, that the gospel would never, that we would never grow beyond the gospel, mature beyond the gospel, but that it would be our precious daily remembrance of what Christ has done. Revive our hearts, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.